Thank you very much for the privilege of um, being here to preach today and uh, invite your attention to two passages of scripture, the first by way of a text and the second by way of an outcome of the truth of that text. So we will turn in our Bibles to Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16 and verse 26 and my subject this morning is the infinite value of a soul the infinite value of a soul and the text is Matthew 16 chapter 16 verse 26 what good will it be for a man if he gains the whole world yet forfeits or loses his soul? Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? And then if you turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 9 and reading the paragraph beginning at verse 19. The paragraph beginning at verse 19, chapter 9, 1 Corinthians. Though I am free and belong to no man, I make myself a slave to everyone, to win as many as possible. Or you might say to save as many as possible. To the Jews, I became like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law, so as to win those under the law. To those not having the law, I became like one not having the law, though I am not free from God's law, but am under Christ's law so as to win those not having the law. To the weak I became weak, to win the weak. I have become all things to all men, so that by all possible means I might save some. I do all this for the sake of the gospel, that I may share it in its blessings. Now I propose, first of all, uh, to describe to you what a soul is. Because if we're going to deal properly, adequately with the subject, then we must have a worthy understanding of a soul and its value. What is a soul? And that comes even more into focus when we consider in the second place what it is for a soul to be lost. And then even more do we gain in our understanding of the infinite value of a soul when we realize the significance of what it is for a soul to be saved. Now all that of course has a practical outcome, a practical application. And we see this so wonderfully fulfilled in the life of the Apostle Paul, whose own soul was saved. 
And once it was, he dedicated his time, his energy, his life, his reputation, and everything that he possessed, every energy he possessed, every possession that he possessed, every gift that he possessed, he dedicated it to the salvation of souls who have infinite value. So let us begin then by grappling with this subject of the soul. And perhaps the best way of coming to grips with it is to remember that our Lord Jesus Christ became a rational human soul. And this, I believe, is the greatest of all God's miracles. Now, God, in the beginning, created the heavens and the earth out of nothing. Creatio ex nihilo is a neglected truth or doctrine. Out of nothing he made everything that is. Nor did he take a long time to do that because it takes a split second to have a transition from nothingness to substance. But he made the heavens and the earth in six days in order to teach us something that we might learn thereby. He didn't have to take as long as that because we know that when the resurrection comes it will be in a moment in the twinkling of an eye. There will be a creation on a scale more vast in complexity than there was in the creation of the universe. When multitudes, millions, countless souls are resurrected from dust and are given additional properties of body and spirit to what they had before in a moment of time. So we realize the power of God. Now even greater than all that, I believe, is that miracle of the Incarnation when the infinite, eternal, omnipotent, omniscient, all-wise, second person of the Trinity, the pre-existent Christ, who was very God, equal with the Father and equal with the Spirit, from eternity and to eternity, when he became a human, rational soul to have personality, and to have everything that man has, to be very man, to be a single man, that act was an act which is mind-boggling. How can you pour the infinite attributes of God into a finite creature? How can all this be comprehended by a human soul? How can one man be divine? Now, we can understand that our Lord Jesus Christ could lay aside these attributes. And we believe that that is the meaning expressed in Philippians chapter 2. Not that he emptied himself and became less than God. Not that, no, not at all but rather says that he was all that God is. But he had those attributes of power and omniscience, omniscience to be dormant, to be laid aside. Then as he grew 
in his human personality, in his rationality, and in everything that man is. Sir, these divine attributes began to express themselves, if I may put it that way. And when we come to our Lord's ministry, we see from time to time his divine being, because our Lord was a person in which all the divine nature, I say all the divine nature, and all the human nature was made one indivisibly, joined together without any confusion, joined together without any horrible problem of saying that he was God one day and man the next day. No, he was always and ever in his humanity, deity. He was fully deity and he was fully humanity. And here we have the one person, the Christ, the pre-existent one, God Almighty. And especially do we see from time to time, especially in his ministry, omniscience breaking forth in his power to create. Especially do we see his omniscience, his knowing all things, his knowing all physical things, knowing where the fish were in the lake, which prostrated Peter because he could see in that something utterly supernatural, something beyond this world. He knew that one fish in that lake had a golden coin in its mouth. He knew that. He had omniscience. He knew what was in men's minds. He knew what the Pharisees were thinking. He knew the future. He knew what would happen to Judas Iscariot. He knew what would happen to Peter. He knew what would happen to Jerusalem. He knew what would happen in the future history of the world. He had divine omniscience. But we see in Christ a rational soul. We see his humanity. We see his compassion. We see his suffering. We see his love. We see his feeling sometimes of wrath and indignation. Everything that we experience in emotion, he experienced in emotion. He, he was all that man is. And what is man? Well, I am a dichotomist. That is, I believe that man is twofold. I think it's over complicated matters to try and make man into three. I believe man is body and soul. If you want to say spirit, well, body, soul, and spirit together. And I believe that because when a man dies, he's absent from the body, and if he's a Christian, present with the Lord. And in his soul, he comprehends all that he has done, all his memory, all his conscience, all his feelings, all his affections, all his mentality, all his intellect, all that is embraced in the soul. And the body is merely the vehicle by which this personality, this character, this memory, this conscience, these feelings, these affections, and this intellect is expressed. And our Lord Jesus Christ, being very man, died. Died as we die. And I do not believe that he went to hell. I believe he had been in the sufferings of hell in a darkness so great and ghastly that no man or angel was permitted to look upon it. So intense and supernatural was that darkness that covered him in those hours of agony upon the cross when he bore away our own 
sins in his body on the tree. So dreadful were his sufferings that he suffered in that dark. But when he died, he went into paradise. As he said to the dying malefactor, this day you shall be with me in paradise. And Christ in all his humanity, of soul, comprehending all that he was man, was in the presence of his Father in paradise, awaiting the resurrection, a glorious resurrection from the grave, from the tomb. And then having been resurrected from the dead, he ascended to his Father. And now, to the admiration of the angelic host and our admiration, he is man. He is man and God together. Indivisibly so. Perfectly so. Eternally so. And how a man can be all that God is and exercise all these attributes of omniscience and omnipotence and all wisdom and all knowledge. He can comprehend everything and be one with his Father, working concurrently with his Father and working concurrently always with the Spirit, the mind of the Spirit is the mind of Christ. How that can all be confined to a human body, I say, must surely be the great demonstration of divine power and wisdom that we will ever, ever behold. Our minds are a God and all inspired when we look at the universe in its magnitude, in its form. But it is not animated. It is inanimate. It's wonderful. We can't make anything. We can't make a fly or a flower. We can make nothing. We can create nothing. And God made it all. And it's wonderful. It's far greater than the planet, than the sun with all its power and warmth. All the constellation is a soul, is a person, the mind, blended with the personality, with rationality with conscience and memory, with affections and emotions, a soul made in the image of God. This is the apex of the creation. And I say, a soul is infinite in its value. And our Lord is adverting to that. What good will you have, my friend? If you go out for this world's possessions and values and you lose your soul, how great is the loss of your soul. A soul is worth more than all the world's riches, all the world's honors are nothing compared to the value of a soul. And we see this in the loss of a soul. What good would it be for you, my friend, if you 
Today in the whole world, nobody could ever do such a thing. The wealthiest man in America only possesses a part of the destruction of it. But what shall it profit you, my friend, if you gain a great deal? Many of your ambition, ambitions but lose your soul. Well, what does it mean to lose a soul? We thought about a soul and what it is and have illustrated it with the life of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Incarnation, when God took manhood to Himself. All that a man is, He took to Himself and now is the God-man. But what is it for a soul to be lost? And I say this, I have meditated much on the subject, and there is nothing more terrifying, nothing more awful than to think of the loss of a soul. Our Lord opened the window of eternity for us. In Luke chapter 16, by talking of two people, a rich man and a poor man, the rich man and Lazarus, and he describes how the rich man died, and how the poor man died, and what happened. The poor man went to Abraham's bosom, which is an expression of the incompetent. man died. And the very next sentence is, and being in hell, he lifted up his eyes and saw Lazarus afar off in Abraham's bosom, and being in torment, he cried out for help. But there was no help forthcoming. For Abraham said, a great gulf separates us from you, and nobody can cross over the gulf. A soul outside Christ, when that soul, when that person, when that man, when that woman, when that child dies, outside of Christ, that soul goes immediately into hell. There's no demand. Immediately into hell. And the fact that there is comprehension, that there is sight, that there is feeling, that there is agony, that there is torment, shows that that soul in its entirety has gone into hell. To away the great resurrection, the great universal resurrection from the dead, when that soul in its entirety will be reunited with a body, a resurrection body, a body different to the bodies we now have, a life but different, the same but different. And in that body, that same body, in all its sameness, in all the sameness of its record and history, in that body, that person will be judged for everything ever done 
ever remembered. And the conscience will be earthened. The books will be earthened. And the books of conscience will be earthened. And that fall will be judged meticulously, accurately, fairly and justly. And sentence will be pronounced. And this is the sentence from the judge on those who have done wickedly, who have not believed the gospel. Depart from me, you cursed, into everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. And they will go away into everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. And that is not annihilation. That is not annihilation. Because our Lord himself said that we should rather cut off a hand or gouge out an eye if it's going to lead us to live a life of sin that will take us to hell where he says their worm dies not and the fire is not quenched. Some people argue about the fire. And they say, well, how can angels burn in fire? Fools! There are many kinds of fire. And there is a fire that will torment the devil. And all those souls trapped into hell. And great is the loss of a soul. Where there were, dieth not. Referring, I believe, to the torment, to the remorse, which is endless, even increasing upon every remembrance of opportunities lost, of sins committed, of vileness done, in that body in which they are now tormented, in their soul. In the body, great is the loss of a soul. But I'll tell you the strength of the loss is eternity. That is the strength of it. Where hell to go on for a thousand years, that would be extraordinary. But it will not go on for a thousand years. It is endless. And we should cease, I think, sometimes to use this word eternity because it trips off our tongue so easily. Endless age. Great is the loss of a soul in endless age. Can you measure that which is endless? Can you measure eternity? Can you therefore measure loss in those terms? And what is hell but blackness, darkness, pain, remorse, suffering, punishment, wrath? It's terrible. I don't understand it. And like many other ministers, I have often been tempted to compromise on this matter. Because it would be much more comfortable not to believe. 
But nobody spoke more clearly of it than our Lord himself. And Paul never compromised on this matter. Moreover, John, the beloved apostle, he stressed it and underlined it. Especially so in the Revelation. Great and terrible is the loss of a soul. For it is endless torment. Where the worm of remorse dies not and the fire are not quenched. We have, can have no adequate understanding of this. And because we do tend to pass it by, we ought to contemplate. And in Isaiah chapter 66, it is contemplated. Sometimes in the future life, sometimes in the life to come, we will see, maybe only momentarily, but we will see hell. Read the concluding verses of Isaiah 66 and you will see it there. For hell is a monument to the justice and holiness of God. He has no delight in the death of the wicked, that the wicked should die. But he will not compromise his holiness for you or anybody else. And I'll tell you why. He would not compromise his holiness and justice for his own son. Father, if it be possible for me to escape this cup, may it be so. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. And the father said, you must drink it all. He will not compromise. But more briefly, See the value, the infinite value of a soul and the salvation of a soul from darkness, from endless darkness and blackness. From that forever, the soul is saved for another forever. Union with Christ, the eternal paradise, the new earth, the new heavens, the new Jerusalem, glorified bodies with increased capacities of sound and sight, increased capacities of appreciation and of worship, of liberation. We are totally liberated from all sin, all desire for sin. We are liberated. We are free. We are brought into the company of angels and all the saints and all the believers from the dawn of history to the last one. And Christ is the center of all. What a wonder it is to be saved. What a wonder it is to be redeemed. At what cost we were redeemed by the precious blood of God's dear Son. The angels in heaven rejoice over one sinner that comes to repentance. And so ought we to rejoice because they do understand the infinite value of a soul. And heaven will be a place where we increase in our appreciation, increase in our knowledge, because none of us will be like God. We won't have an omniscience or omniscience. That is the sole attribute of the almighty triune God. We'll have many who we need to have fellowship with, many who we need to know, many whom we need to appreciate from all tribes, 
countries, lands, kindreds, and languages, and they will all redound to the glory of their Savior and of our God who has had grace toward them. And then we will see what powers there are in the human soul. Powers to love, powers to worship, powers to admire, powers to have communion with God in whose image we are made. How great is the soul! How mighty is the intellect with which God has endowed us! How we should prize that and use the intellect and not despise it. We are transformed by the renewing of our minds. And we should praise and thank God for the gift of memory and intellect and understanding and reason. Dedicating all these to Him and to His Spirit that He might give us understanding and perception. How mighty is the soul of man. How wonderful the salvation of a soul. Because of all these capacities, all these gifts, affection, and ability. What a wonderful thing human personality is. And how we're all so different. Now let me move on to the practical application. That being so, that we appreciate what a soul is. You have a father, or a mother, or a child, a son or a daughter. Meditate often upon it. Think of these souls one by one. How valuable they are. What is life? But a soul embracing God's creation and entering into it all responsibly and accountably. All this is involved in a soul. How she brought you up and cared for you and loved you. Think of your brothers and sisters if you have. How precious. Don't let anything cloud the fact of the infinite value of your relatives and the infinite value of your friends. But there is an eternity wrapped up in every one of them. Endless ages pertain to every soul. Paul saw it clearly. And because he saw it clearly, he was prepared to give himself to the salvation of souls, for the glory of God, to the Jews he became a Jew. 1 Corinthians 9 and verse 20. And becoming a Jew to the Jews. Even though he wasn't strictly anymore under the Mosaic law with all its requirements. He would for their sake submit to various ordinances. Or vow. We can sometimes read Acts and say, well, how could Paul do that? But he wasn't compromising it as in the Acts, in the time of transition from the Old Testament to the New Testament. Where the target if you don't make room for and understand the period of transition from the Old to the New. But he was prepared to suffer to save his fellow Jews. 
And you read Romans chapters 9 to 11, and you will see that he even dared to say, even dared to suggest that he would give his own soul to save his fellow countrymen. That's love. How could you say that, Paul? Well, it's hyperbole, surely. You can't really believe it. But he meant that he really, really loved them and put himself out for them. And then to the Gentiles who were so weak, who didn't have a law. And he says to here in this context that he was under the law of Christ. We're not lawless. Christ's laws are even more morally demanding than Mosaic law. Because it reaches right into the soul that I've been talking about. And from the soul we are required to love God with all our hearts, minds and bodies. Now there can be no greater law than that. That's Christ's law. But he was prepared to put up with their ignorance. He was prepared to be stoned by them and was. To be beaten by them. He was prepared to undergo all manner of sufferings because he saw the infinite value of their soul. Whether in Corinth or in Athens or in Rome or the, in Thessalonica, no matter where he went, Philippi, churches of Asia Minor, he saw the infinite value of human soul and was therefore prepared to become weak for the weak and strong for the strong, never compromising morality. He'd never offend God, never. He would never break a known law against God to himself. He wouldn't do that, of course not. But he studied all these issues and knew exactly what he could do and where he could put himself out, he would put himself out. In the second epistle, he tells us of some of his sufferings. 2 Corinthians 11 and from verse 23. I have worked much harder than the other apostles, he said. I have been in prison more frequently. I have been flogged more severely. I have been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews forty lashes minus one. We haven't been beaten for the same. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned, three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I have been constantly on the move. I have been in danger from rivers and from bandits from my own countrymen and from the Gentiles, in cities and out of cities, at sea and on land, everywhere. He was in peril. All that he says, I do for the sake of the gospel, for the salvation of souls. I am prepared to become all things to all men. I don't care what I eat. I don't care what weather I have to endure. I don't care how long I am in prison. But if I can win souls, then I will submit myself to suffering. And in Philippians chapter 3, he says in verse 10, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his suffering, becoming like him in his death. Now let us apply this. This thought of hospitality. I heard 
last week of a woman who came across a man and his wife and five children who were destitute. The man was tending to drink, had an addiction for drink. Because they were destitute and out of home, it was a recent event. She took them all in, all in, for two months. It's a lot. And the Lord used that to bring salvation to that family. That's hospitality. I've worked with a fellow elder for 22 years. And he has regularly, through his life, given generously in hospitality. Nothing to have 14 people regularly sit down at the dinner table on Sunday. Taking people from the Orient, from abroad, taking them into his home by way of adoption, looking after them. One Chinese girl there was in his home for a number of years. No evidence of any spirituality. But then she was saved. All that time he was patient. And even if she hadn't been saved, it wouldn't make any difference to his hospitality. How is it with your hospitality? Do you regard souls as of infinite value? Oh, we can always find an excuse. I can look back on things of which I am utterly ashamed. Because I wasn't quick to recognize a genuine need. You always think, oh well, this man's a trickster or something's wrong. Remember the Good Samaritan. Our Lord's parable. The infinite value of a soul. So how is it with your hospitality? Now it's very hard on women in hospitality. It's hard, hard work. It's disruptive. It's difficult. But let us remember, this is one practical aspect. You are not being asked to go over mountains and to cross oceans. You are not asked to preach publicly or to be assaulted or to be stoned like Paul was. But you may be asked to give hospitality to foreign students that are coming in. In Britain we have a tremendous mission field right on our doorstep. And we are trying to do all we can to give Christian hospitality to these students who are coming in from Muslim countries and from all other countries without any knowledge of other people just thrown in there. What a golden opportunity to befriend them, to be kind to them, to see the infinite worth of their soul. So what about giving? Are we generous in our giving? America is very generous. It's known for generosity. But when we see the need of the third world, their need, first of all, about everything else, for expository preach, for true missionaries, we are way behind. We have to be much more realistic about this. We need to recapture something of the past to see the infinite value of souls. I'm thrilled when I hear of good men who devote their lives to 
the mission field. Again, this last week, I heard of a man going up to the Kurds in the land of Jordan, a whole group of people, many, many thousands, several hundred thousands of them, only three missionaries. And there are many such situations. Well, if we're not going ourselves, what are we doing in our prayers? And what are we doing in practice to promote this, to encourage others to go to God? But our interest, our motivation, can only be fueled by the knowledge of the infinite value of the soul. And we should long for souls to be born again. And how are they born again? Well, the whole man is addressed as not a quick, short route to save souls. There's no shortcut. The whole man in his soul, in his mind, in his affections, has to be embraced, has to be addressed with the truth of the gospel. And then the Holy Spirit uses that to bring a change in the whole soul of man. Regeneration is totally pervasive. Embraces every part of a man so that he can never again be a lost soul. Never again be what he was before. But let me conclude by asking you whether you are sure of your soul. Are you prepared to examine yourself? Are you prepared to ask the question, do I love the Redeemer? Do I love the Father who sent him? Do I love and esteem the ministry and prize the ministry of the Holy Spirit in my heart? And do I encourage that ministry in my heart to make me like this apostle, sacrificial, Hardworking, devoted to reaching out with hospitality and kindness and practical good 